Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and this is episode 129 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast in which we are going through all the films of the Criterion Collection in the original chronological order of their theatrical release. And we are now into August of 1972 and uh, picking up kind of where this season four of the podcast began. Another Zadoichi movie. This is Zadoichi in Desperation, the second Zadoichi title that was released in that year. And it's the 24th film of the 25 film original series. There was another one that came out in 1989, kind of the grand finale, as well as about, what, four, five, six years of TV episodes that uh, the series transitioned into after one more feature-length film that came out in 1973, which I'll be talking about somewhere down the road, eventually, whenever we get to season five. Uh, But to kind of continue our journey and to follow Zadoichi on his own pilgrimage, Got a couple guests who uh, were last with me together when we talked about the Poseidon Adventure back in August of this year. So let's go ahead and introduce them. Uh, Richard Doyle, welcome once again. Nice to have you back. Hey, good to be here. That's all right. Well, thank you for joining me on this uh, trek with Zadoichi and Robert Taylor. Welcome back again. Nice to talk to you. David, is that you? I can't quite see. It seems like the director and cinematographer have put a ton of props directly in front of the camera. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is a film directed by none other than uh, Shin- oh my gosh, what's his name again? Shintaro Katsu. Yes, and uh, he is the, of course the star of, of the Zadoichi series. Uh, really made himself quite a legendary figure for uh, his depiction of Zadoichi in all the moods and all the positions and all the types of uh, predicaments that the the blind swordsman got himself into. He did comedy, he did uh, action, he did drama, he did kind of weirdness. And (laughs) this film has a a little bit of all of that, maybe a little bit less on the comedy side, uh, unless you find, uh, you know, savage violence and uh, abuse and degradation uh, humorous in some way, and I feel bad for you if you do. Uh, <laughs> but we uh, we we definitely have a very unique, um, and memorable entry into the Zadoichi series. It's a film that has been considered somewhat divisive, perhaps, among the uh, the fans of the franchise. And I really don't know what our what our guests think about it. I'm still kind of processing it myself. I just rewatched it uh, just this afternoon, right before we got ready to record. So, let's get into our conversation, uh, Robert. Since I haven't talked to you in a little bit, I'll give you the uh, honors of kind of giving us your first take. You already talked a little bit about the uh, <laughs> the directing style, the uh, the optics that uh, Mr. Katsu, uh, you know, chose and in, in putting this film together. So, uh, what did you think of Zadoichi in Desperation? I mean, it's audacious for a franchise movie. I can see why there's only one left after this. Because (laughs) um, the guy took some big swings. I think like 30% of them paid off and 70% of them was a little bit what the fuck. Um, That said, (laughs) I would much rather watch a movie that just fucking goes for it than Mm -hmm. uh, something that we've already seen 24 times. So I appreciate the fact that they were trying to bring some new blood uh, some sort of blood pun. I wish that I, I had a better <laughs> blood pun right now. Uh, but it's nice to have some new blood in the series at this point. Yeah, he's definitely uh, stretching into some frontiers of, of violence and, and uh, sadistic uh, cruelty. Uh, you know, and Richard, you and I just got done talking about Last House on the Left. <laughs> and I was talking about in that film, uh, in, that, uh, in that episode, how I was kind of ready to move on to brighter, greener pastures. Well, I'm not there yet, you know. This film really is in its own way, just as brutal and unforgiving and merciless as... Uh, as Last House on the Left, although maybe not as nearly as infamous. But uh, yeah, what what'd you think of the this particular installment? I, I probably feel very similar to, to Robert in this one. I, I thought for like three quarters of the running time, I wasn't sure whether I, I liked it at all. A lot of it due to his visual choices, which I think made a lot of the film really confusing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I kind of liked the ending of it. So... Mm-hmm. I sort of felt like it sort of rallied in the end. And I'm like, well, you know, at least that was different. If you recall, I didn't really like the last film in the series, partly just because it felt so much like a dull retread of everything that had come before it. 
This mm-hmm. one certainly doesn't feel like that at all. Right. Yeah. No. We're we're definitely into some darker territory, and and there's there are just some interesting choices made. So maybe I'll just give a, a little bit of a recap here just to set it up. And and I will I will be the first to say that uh, you know a lot of those Zatoichi movies they kind of blur together in my memory. You know, I have certain scenes and moments and, and impressions that I can get, but I I don't really have a lot of um you know, you, you throw out a random Zatoichi title at me, I might be able to recall some particular aspect of the film, but there's a pretty good chance that I'd have to go read up on it or look at my notes or something like that. But this one feels like it's going to sort of stick in my memory as a as a kind of a, a unique point, whether it's a highlight, a low light, or just kind of off the rail bonkers, you know, I guess maybe time will sort of crystallize an opinion in my own mind but this film really does kind of start well i guess the very beginning of the film is a little bit unusual because it's just uh you know credits it's just uh, you know scrolling through the names of the different people involved the actors crew etc but in silence there's there's no opening soundtrack music it's just a black screen with the japanese characters and of course for those watching and with the subtitles the subtitles come on and tell you who's who uh, but then the movie starts with a little bit of a you know ordinary setup there's Zatoichi kind of poking his way along kind of in the timid blind uh, masseur role that I guess is kind of his baseline and he's walking across a bridge a creaky old wooden bridge and there's a woman playing the samisen the little Japanese kind of a three-stringed you know banjo type of instrument and he's hearing her music and he's complimenting her and and uh you know, they exchange a few pleasantries. He um, and then he decides he wants to kind of bless her with a with a bit of a gift. He reaches out to give her a coin. She's quite surprised at his generosity, and then suddenly, because she is taken by surprise, she trips and stumbles. And then Stan Brackage shows up to do a little bit of a a little interlude there uh, as uh, she falls into the water, drowns. She drops her shamisen on the bridge so he's able to retrieve the instrument, Uh, but she's lost. Uh, That that little act of generosity had a very indirect effect in ending her life and bringing her to somewhat of a tragic conclusion. In their conversation, she mentioned that she has a daughter who works in a kind of a notorious brothel that Zadoichi apparently knows about, but says that that's not the kind of place a blind man should go. But since he had that little clue that this woman has a daughter, um, he decides in his kind of chivalrous, gallant way that he's going to go and find her. He brings the instrument along. The instrument may be a clue as to help uh, identify you know, who's the daughter of the woman that this instrument belonged to and that's what gets us on our way he's got a little bit of a mission now which is pretty much your typical starting point for any Zadoichi film he stumbles across some hard-pressed strangers and is enlisted maybe not voluntarily or immediately but he ends up taking a little bit of sympathy for somebody's plight and comes in as the heroic you know force of justice and uh, severity in terms of the bad guys but but merciful kindness to the people who are struggling. So yeah, we're we're basically in pretty conventional Zadoichi territory to start with. Uh, but then he finds his way to the brothel, and that's where things really start to take that grim turn. But before we get too far into the plot, what did you think about that little device, that little Stan Brackage illusion, this kind of rapid, quick cut? I guess this is the the part that the liner notes called the psychedelic uh, effect. Uh, I'm not sure I really would call it that myself, but uh, that that little device, you, you see that same little sequence play itself out a few different times of splashing water, the woman's face, really kind of quick cut images, kind of different. Uh, what do you guys think about that little, that little gimmick there? I kind of liked it, which is good because I get to see it yeah. about five or six times. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they didn't. They didn't really want to reshuffle the deck. I think it's the same exact sequence. Um, now, is that supposed to be an impression of Zadoichi's visualization of what happened, or or what? I'm not sure. But uh, Robert, you had a an opinion on it. I liked it visually. I thought that it was a little bit lazy because all they would have had to do is have Zadoichi drop the coin 
and then she reaches for the coin or gets on her knees, and then the bridge breaks. That yeah, would make yeah. a lot more sense than he looks over and suddenly she's gone. So right. it seems like it could have been very easy to get that coverage as well. And most people who are logical would say, hey, this seems to make more sense. But we are not in that type of movie, are we? No. <laughs> and they probably did not want to put the woman in the precarious position of having to hang off the bridge by her hands and all of that. So, <laughs> But it is, a, it is an odd little uh, moment and another, another little unique aspect of the film that makes it perhaps stand out just, just a little bit from the run-of-the-mill Zatoichi film. Uh, but I know, Robert, you want to kind of give us a kind of take it from there. What were some of the elements that maybe stood out to you as the story unfolds? And we really get into this very grim, very, um, you know, relentlessly bleak, uh, situation. Uh, Zadoichi definitely is down in the, the dregs of society here. And, uh, there isn't really a lot of relief, mirth or levity, which is typically part of the Zadoichi variety show. You got your comedy, you got your drama etc but i don't know what were some of your impressions just from the way the film unfolded well we've got the the main thrust of the storyline which is he frees a sex worker after he uh is better at cheating at playing straight (laughs) when everyone else is cheating at one of the classic uh dice games and then of course that uh, is another can of sardines that somehow makes things worse. Him wanting to free her somehow makes things worse. And then we also have uh, some young lovers who are destined to not have a very happy ending. We also have um, the sex worker who has the little brother who, wait, that doesn't end very happily either. <laughs> no, it's like a 14-year-old girl. So this is this is kind of, you could say, a, a look at some of the exploitation of, mm-hmm. of young women. I mean, there's definitely a, a sympathetic eye cast on the terrible conditions that, that these young sex workers had to endure. And so you do, I, I'm not going to say this is a feminist type of film or message, but it is very much in keeping with um, some of the other earlier Japanese films that have really, you know, tried to put in front of our viewers uh, just how rough and rotten it is to be caught up in this industry, or at least the way it was structured at that time. Yeah, it's tragedy built upon tragedy built upon tragedy, and then there are some genuinely bananas little details that are thrown in completely out of nowhere, like... It felt very much like when William Shatner got to direct, like, Star Trek V, and he's like, I want to see Uhura's legs, and I want to see, like, the sexy Catwoman dancing and stuff like that. Well, Shintaro Katsu was like, I want to see a mentally handicapped young man be masturbated by his friends. And I was just, I was so baffled by the scene. Guys, I genuinely thought it had flipped over to a different movie. And yeah. I have been watching something else because in my wildest dreams, wildest dreams, did I, I never would have thought that a Zadoichi movie would have done. And we see a cum shot, guys. I was like, I, I, I know that I, I feel like I'm coming on strong here, but I feel like we, this is the elephant in the room. Guys. Well, right. every. Every review I read of this movie mentions this. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're not coming on strong. You're just kind of matching what Katsu puts in front of us. It's like, we got to deal with this. <laughs> I genuinely want, like, as someone who has been in a bunch of meetings with producers and executives, I want to know the conversations that took place <laughs> to get that sequence in the movie. Like, how many people had to sign off on the sequence in order for it to, like I said, I can see why the series died off soon after. Um, but completely banana. And this, the weirdest thing is, like, uh, and I'm sure Richard's going to mention this as well. This is like, not. I mentioned number one, but there are like seven other scenes that we yeah. could be mentioning as well that are not quite as bananas, but in the same echelon of bananas. And the really strange thing is that none of this has anything to do with Zatoichi. No! <laughs> right. It's it's completely gratuitous. Like, they just threw it in because they felt 
they had to. This is what the kids are doing these days or something. I don't know. It is it is very interesting. Uh, you know, again, the, going back to the liner notes, they talk about the grindhouse grimness of this film and thinking about grindhouse, thinking about exploitation, thinking about kind of new frontiers and just kind of how outrageous and uh, provocative can you get. Uh, you know, we, we think about that was ha- what was happening here in the USA, and, and we've talked about some of those kind of boundary-smashing films, but uh, Zadowichi was right up there. So, so, yeah, Robert's mentioned a few of those scenes. Uh, Richard, what do you have to say about that? You, you mentioned the reviews mentioning it there, so uh, yeah, pick it up. Uh, one of the things, like some of the... Like some of the less negative reviews I read suggest that there's almost an element of parody going on in this movie mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that, you know, Zatoichi is following what you might call one of the more minor plots going on in this movie. Well, he's missing the great conspiracy to rob all this, all the fishermen of their livelihood. And he's missing this young woman and her little brother being picked upon it. And that maybe it's sort of a, a satirical idea of like, you know, the world being much worse than, than these movies generally depict it. Hmm. I kind of like that idea. I'm not sure that I got that out of watching the movie. I was kind of puzzled by all these B and C plots going on. Well, Zatoichi has no connection to them whatsoever. Right. They're, they're kind of this, all of this kind of corruption and, and greed and, and, uh, yeah, just kind of this punishing uh, oppression of these ordinary peasant people. And again, that's that's kind of a, a running theme through so many of these movies. You know, the, the rich, the powerful, the Yakuza gang bosses, uh, the greedy criminal overlords, or, you know, just the, the, the ownership class uh, just grinds the, the, the ordinary common folk into the dust as they accumulate their fortunes. There just seem to be sort of an especially thick element of that there. And so you're right, there's Zadoichi who is, you know, almost um, absurdly and futilely looking to rescue one woman from from this ordeal uh, because he, you know, the, I guess the principle is that he feels a modicum of guilt that his action cost uh the the woman's mother her life i mean he didn't really do anything wrong and i don't know that he should feel some sense of guilt or or burden or obligation but you know let's just go with it so the the woman died he wants to do right by this one young woman and so that's kind of his mission of mercy but in the in the big picture what difference does it really make there's so much other suffering and misery happening at all different levels, uh, but but I, I did feel that at a certain point they were just looking for as many kind of heart tugging, uh, sorrow inducing elements as they could come up with. So you've got you know a, a cute little kid, you know, yeah. kind of doing his cute Japanese kid thing, and it's like yeah, his fate is really harsh. You see the dead boy, and you see him in this little box, and she pulls his you know, his dead hand up out of it. And it's like, that's some pretty harsh stuff to have to sort of process as you're, you know, sitting there munching your popcorn and enjoying what you think is just another Zatoichi movie. I think that, David, you and I, and Richard, you and I as well, have covered some batshit movies on this (laughs) podcast. Recently, we have covered some batshit movies. I think this is one of the battiest of the batshit. And even as we say all of this stuff, because I completely, like, the first nine, the first 70 minutes are insanity. Mm -hmm. The last 15 minutes, as Richard alluded to earlier, I think are fucking incredible. Like everything from the moment where you don't think that they're going to stab his hands and they do is like, I genuinely gasped because I was like, Oh, they're not going to. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And as fucked up as much of the framing is in this movie, that one shot of his hands with the blood and then you can see his reflection is a masterpiece level. Yes, I I was beautiful. Right. You see the reflection of the the boss guy, Boss Magoro, who's mocking and taunting Zadoichi as the 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 dark water mingles with the blood 
Zadoichi's hands are still there, spurting blood while his face is bowed over. It is, it's like, you know, exquisitely horrifying, but what a composition, you know, mm-hmm. and, and very powerfully executed, yeah, kind of unforgettable in its way. Yeah, and the last shot of him just walking along the beach. Yeah. Last, I, I, it's I, one of my I, favorite I, shots in the entire franchise that I've seen so far. Yeah, it's it is. I mean, and if that had been the last shot in the entire franchise, it would have been fitting, like a, a grand finale, you know, because it's it's Zadoichi bleakly staggering along, just a, a small silhouette in this super widescreen frame with the ocean waves just pouring in inexorably for all time and eternity, and there's Zadoichi, just this little speck of a figure, this tragic hero making his way from the right to the left side of the frame and that's the end but let's not wrap up the episode quite yet. Oh, okay. yeah the problem is it's not a short film and there's much more to discuss that's right we've sort of dodged around the the framing in this movie but i don't understand that at all like you're talking the, about these intense close-ups and so many out of focus them. stuff yeah there's yeah. a lot of that right and i'm focusing on things that are not the center of action in the frame like like so often i honestly had trouble figuring out what was going on in a lot of this movie and i'm not sure why he made these choices they seem do very you, strange do you think it's some kind of art shot effect i mean it seemed it seemed to me that he's going for some kind of impressionism the way you you do have some you know long shots that you know are out of focus and then they come yeah. into focus when a, a figure steps into the frame or they yeah, the even transition, you know, uh, right in the middle of the shot to draw your attention from up close to farther away. But but there's a lot of character faces that are just fragments or just slices, you know, their part their eye and part of their mouth and, and there's some interesting horizontal compositions but you're right a lot of it is very and uh, very dark as well i mean like physically literally dark there's a lot of shadow there's a lot of nighttime stuff uh there's frames within frames not in an ozu like way where you've got the doorways and there's kind of an elegance to it but just you know slivers of light and and just kind of a claustrophobic kind of an oppressive dark effect it's not i don't know i I wouldn't even call it noirish it's something a little bit different than that it 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 seems like an odd idea to make it impressionistic when your main character is blind yeah that that's i i would think that they were he was trying for something like that but i don't know what sense that makes i guess is my question Mm It, it just seems sort of needlessly artsy in its visual scheme, like in a film that isn't really all that artsy in a sense. So I was puzzled by it, like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the the, the themes that he's touching on, all, you know, all the violence and cruelty that we've already kind of described in some ways, but but also the, the sexual uh, frankness of it. I mean, this is, I think, might be the first time Zadoichi gets some (laughs) on screen you know uh and it's certainly and it puts him in a in a situation of incredible vulnerability because this woman is you know making love to him as a pretense so that he's more easily you know taken advantage of uh by a, a group of men there who are there to kill him you know and so um you know she and she is kind of going along she's kind of seducing him in a way he's allowing himself to be to a certain extent but uh, of course he springs into action immediately and dispatches the bad guys but in the process you know she's she's kidnapped taken away and he puts himself at great risk to go and rescue her so there are a lot of um you know examples of zadoichi's chivalry that you know they they seem to make sense within the sort of the poetics of of his character in the moment but they don't really make a lot of logical sense as to why would he really do that you know other than i guess that's just the motivation of his character to be this heroic kind of savior and and really even the pierced hands i really thought boy this is almost like a sort of a messianic type of uh presentation of the character it reminded me of the uh conclusion of the spaghetti western Django Django gets his hands destroyed and has to defeat the enemy like mm-hmm. with a pistol with his broken hands and I was wondering if that was maybe slightly copying that but it certainly is it's miles better than the rest of the film I'd say but um, 
I guess I'm wondering whether part of the intention of this film is that Zatoichi is sort of an outdated character. And it's putting mm-hmm. him in a much harsher world where his behavior starts to seem outdated. Like in the sequence you described, you know, he mm-hmm. puts himself at great risk like he does in a lot of the films in order to rescue somebody. And then it just does not work out for him. <laughs> now, he pays an incredibly heavy price this time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and there have been other, you know, recent films in the series that, you know, up the 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 degree of bloodshed or the explicitness of the gore or the just the brutality of the violence i mean you know some of the some of the you know kills in the final sequence there are really intense and really bloody and uh you know we've we've talked in previous episodes about zadoichi about how he's kind of keeping up with the times uh but you're right i I think this one zadoichi does feel older here you know he does feel pretty beaten down and and uh yeah he's going to be carrying some scars with him in fact i am kind of interested you could go into the next and 25th film in the series how does he recover because those 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 punctures of his hands looked like they went pretty deep <laughs> in fact i wondered if he even did some kind of prosthetics or something because it didn't look too fake, you know, about the, the those blades going into the hands and the blood coming out. It was it was pretty riveting. I agree. I <laughs> I suspect that it's going to be a thing like um, if they mention it at all, it'll just right. be like he's taking off the bandages in the very first scene or something like that. Sort of like at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service when Bond was like, no, this is the biggest cliffhanger. How will I ever recover? And then two minutes into Diamonds Are Forever, he's avenged his wife's death and is like, all right, new adventure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's going to be tons of continuity, but uh, it does at least raise the question how does he how does he recover from this one uh but just also that that kind of intensity of the the, what he has to do to get the sword in his hands now that he can no longer actually have a grip on on the on, on the handle of his sword there uh he he has to lash the sword to his i think it's to his right hand uh tying the bandages with his teeth you know so the, there's blood dripping i mean it's it's very i don't know heroic and 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 bold and and kind of astonishing you know the lengths that he goes to to be able to you know maintain his ability to fight and defend himself uh, again they they i think they came up with a pretty satisfying um way to to differentiate this final boss battle with so many of the others that we've seen we've seen them you know in the middle of the fire festival uh surrounded by flames we've seen them surrounded by bigger crowds and hordes of of swordsmen but but this one here it definitely had a kind of a brutish nasty satisfaction to the way it all went down i agree i'm also genuinely surprised i am not saying that <clears throat> excuse me i am not saying that shintaro katsu is probably a little bit full of himself like william shatner i'm just saying like <laughs> we've all read the stories <laughs> and so i was also sort of surprised by some of the bold choices that they did with the character you mentioned earlier he's having sex but it's not a situation where oh, he's irresistible to the ladies or something like that, which is what right. you might expect from a movie like this. Instead, you're entirely right. She's full-on femme fatale seducing him so that he might be murdered momentarily, stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I appreciated that it didn't feel like a vanity project in that way. He seemed interested in taking the character in some interesting directions. Uh, that said, did I enjoy the directions sometimes i think it's i think that it is telling that we are focusing most on the final sequence which is the most normalized sequence aside from the fact that it's a little bit more brutal but it's the most normalized sequence in the film considering zadoichi franchise yeah yeah i mean we can go back to the uh oh no it's okay the the molesting (laughs) of the of the of the mentally you know handicapped young man i mean that's that is just such a a a crazy sequence and 
it it really is pretty distasteful to say the least. Um, but the boy getting beaten in the head is also yeah. Oh, the yeah. little really yeah. shocking. Like we yeah. see the the weapon hit the kid in the face, and right. it was again. Wait, what? Oh God, Jesus! Yeah, it, yeah. And I mean. Zach. At least they didn't bring any puppies out or anything like that. I mean, they, they, you know, where else are they going to take this, right? Yeah, but it feels like Zadoichi up until this point has been, despite being violent, a franchise, a PG thirteen franchise at yeah. best, yeah. right? This is something where you take your kids once they're ten years old to go check out the. I am picturing just children wailing in the theaters and being dragged out, and like. It, yeah. It's like it, I went to see Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, or as I like to call it, Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Shit. And um, <laughs> and in the movie, spoiler alert: I assume you gentlemen have not seen it because you are better yeah. than me. <laughs> I'm probably not better than you, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, trust tr- you are not missing a thing. But two thirds of the way through the movie, spoiler alert: like they brutally murder Superman on screen. And I saw it opening weekend, and there were a ton of kids there, and it was really, and it was just silent in the theater for a few minutes, and then you just start hearing the wails of the children, and then the Mm. parents, like, leading Mm. them out. And I was picturing the exact same thing while I was watching this movie. I was like, wait, what now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we've been talking, there there are some aspects of, like, yeah, how much did I actually enjoy this? And, and there are definitely stretches that are just a bit of an endurance test. Just like, okay, here we go. And yeah, I can do my sort of sociological, you know, pop cultural analysis and try to figure out how does this fit with trends of the times. And as I've been talking about some of the wackiness of, of uh, popular cinema in 1972 with so many of the titles that we've discussed in recent weeks and months, it does feel like there was just some kind of rupture happening <laughs> around the world with just, uh, you know, the depic- depictions of, of some pretty depraved behavior um, without without a whole lot of uh, surrounding context to, to make it some kind of redeeming point or, or you know, showing a way forward or out of the out of this you know, misery and, and corruption that is being so blatantly portrayed on screen. Now, David, I know you've probably seen all of the Zatoichi films. Richard, have, how many have you seen? I, I was I actually looked at it today at around like 25, not 25, about 20 of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've only... seen all of them up until the next one. I haven't, I've been following the series chronologically through this podcast now. It's I've worth, only seen, oh, go ahead, it, Richard. It's worth noting, I've also watched them in like completely random order, like just because I, I it's a series i feel like you can watch any particular film in it and it doesn't really matter so i have there's no logic to which ones i've seen <laughs> i feel like i'm overdue for at least a rewatch at least for a sampling of some of the earlier ones just to kind of get back to the roots there go ahead robert oh i was just curious because i've only watched the four that we've covered on this podcast prior okay. to this one right yeah yeah and i feel like aside from Zatoichi meets Jojimbo, which was hot trash. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the other ones were fun. Like, yeah. they might not have been good, but they were fun. This makes me want to rethink my life choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the earlier Zatoichis, you know, you always have some kind of crazy magical sword tricks. You know, you've got some kind of really, truly, sometimes hilarious moments and stunts. Um just, just not a whole lot of that here, you know. Uh, the music, I thought there was some kind of cool little riffs there, and and kind of a you know early seventies, um, semi funky Japanese twist on it there, and we'll we'll use those little couple samples in the intros and outros there for our audience members to uh, hear for themselves. Um, but yeah, yeah, just I don't know. To me, I'm not sure I have a ton more to say about this. I'm you know, but I'm willing to kick it around a little bit further if there's other moments uh, that stood out. I, th- I think maybe you covered a lot of the highlights already. I kind of have a theory of what's going on in this film. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. In the background. Yeah. Um, like, it's worth noting, like, this is made at a time when, like, the Japanese film industry is kind of in ruins. Yeah, you know? oh yeah. Like, all the studios are going bankrupt, and the only people really going to films are young men in this in, like, the city. 
So mm-hmm. a lot of what's in this film feels like the obligatory, we've got to, if this series is going to continue, we've got to put this stuff in the film. Yes, and stuff that you can't really see anywhere else. But yeah. something, yeah, it is, it's it's trying to find new frontiers for both action and yeah, sensation. So I wonder if this wasn't intended to be the last one in the series. Like, that's mm. essentially mm-hmm. my thought. Like, it, it makes sense giving, like, letting Katsu direct it, you know. And maybe yeah. him, him, like, finding a way in his own mind to deliver what he was asked to deliver but in a way that feels like a satisfying send-off for the character you know like this some make mm-hmm. it somewhat a deconstruction of the series and have him wandering off alone at the end kind of ruined yeah that's a plausible theory to me i mean katsu himself was already moving in other directions i think he's already got the hanzo the razor series is probably in production at this point i mean we're going to be covering at least the first one. I think I might just do a special Hanzo the Razor episode. Maybe we'll do all three of them. I own all three. One. Yeah, okay. So, And they're streaming on the Criterion channel, as is this one. But, of course, it's also in the glorious Spine 679 box set, uh, which is a really magnificent Criterion edition, just the artwork and the, you know, the loving packaging and all of that. And just to have this incredible series uh, which i really do feel is a pretty monumental uh you know master work of japanese cinema i mean the individual films themselves may not quite add up as much as the cumulative weight of the whole series but katsu's performance his ability to bring this character to life very indelibly and as i said at the beginning to, to balance all those elements of comedy action drama pathos uh, even some of the philosophical aspects, which, you know, we're not really too deep in this film, but there's there's some films that are much more kind of into the Zen and into the contemplation of, you know, the purpose of all of this violence and all, all this suffering and kind of putting it in more of that existential context. I, I think Katsu is, a, is able to carry all of that off uh, quite impressively, and I think that's, you know, that's why I've enjoyed this journey through the series, but uh, we'll see. He's got one more feature in the tank as far as this original run was concerned. And then, like I said, back in 1989, uh, you know, considerably what, you know, 17 years after this film was released, he returns in character and apparently in that same sort of timeline sequence to uh, finally wrap up the entire series. So, and he directed the last one. one and mm-hmm. It's he had been in prison, I think, for a long period of time. But the last one, I think, was in, someone actually got like beheaded with a sword on set or something like that. I remember seeing oh, this in okay. one of the special features. Hang on, I'm going to Wikipedia this to make sure, sure. that I'm not actively <laughs> lying to you guys. Um, That's right. We have a very rigorous editorial standard here, Robert. We don't mislead oh, our listeners. No, I t- so Katsu's oldest son while shooting the film, stabbed and killed one of the actors on set. It was supposed to be a prop sword, but then he stabbed him in the neck with a real sword and murdered him. Um, killed him. Wow. Um, yeah. But I That's suspect... pretty devastating. Yeah, yeah, I suspect that in retrospect, Katsu wishes he would have ended here as well, because the next one's not directed by him, as Richard alluded to, and then the last one seems like his son killed someone. That's not great. That's not a great note to go out on. So maybe it's seeing him walking along that beach hunched over, alive, but still struggling is the best send-off we can hope for him. I don't know, maybe Money called. I mean, because not only did he do one more feature in this sequence, but he also did, like I said, for, you know, five or six years on TV. So, uh, you know, this this was a lucrative property, maybe, and sure the tv probably toned it down a little bit certainly from what we see in the film here but uh yeah i think i think i've pretty much said my piece about it is this a zadoichi film i mean where where does this fit as far as recommendations i i don't recommend this as anybody's introduction to the character by any means but uh, what do you guys think as far as uh overall is this one of your least favorite most favorite is uh, it just go ahead richard 
I was going to say, I was happening. I was actually trying to figure that out today, which I, which I yeah. confronted the same issue you do that I look at a lot of them by name and go, what was that one? Zatoichi, yeah. Zatoichi's, you know, cane sword. I don't quite remember what that one was, but I ended up with it somewhere about the middle of the pack, mm-hmm. partly mm-hmm. because I thought the ending kind of really res. I feel a lot better about the film because the ending was so good. Like that sort of psychologically boosts me up a lot. Mm -hmm. Of the few I've seen, Fire Festival is by far my favorite. And this one ranks only better than Yojimbo, which again, hot trash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is not one I'm going to put on just for kicks, you know, just because I want to sort of step back into Zatoichi's world. This one will have if sort of did, a... If you did, David, we would no longer be friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I value my friendship with you much more than uh, my admiration of this particular film. But, it, but you know, just the fact that this was directed by Shintaro Katsu, who had lived with this character for the previous ten years. I'm sure it had you know, made his personal fortune and reputation. And he'd been in this role so many times and in so many different situations. Uh, the fact that he chose to, you know, put the character in this type of a setting, yeah, yeah, maybe he was keeping up with trends of the times. Maybe he was trying to connect with the, you know, kind of the young film bros of his era, you know, kind of giving them some, some shock and awe that, uh, yeah, they hadn't seen before or, or would be amazed to think that the Zatoichi, you know, superhero swordsman that they'd grown up with went into this, you know, bleak, dark territory. Uh, I can see all that, but he's still making a statement. I mean, uh, you know, Zatoichi has taken many lives and he's seen, you know, the, you know, the, the killing of, of many people around him as a character. Uh, but boy, this one just kind of brings all of that violence home and and uh you know kind of tears your heart out and uh rips your guts at the same time what zatoichi has never done before is hid in the storeroom and listen to two people having sex <laughs> oh, <dear laughs> Lord, yes i have removed that yeah. from my mind <laughs> <laughs> well even yeah and even some of the commentary you know when she have she gets so wet after having to take on 10 men well uh, yeah okay you know <laughs> enough said you know <laughs> All right, so yeah, this is not going to be the longest episode we ever did there, but uh, I'd like to check in with guys. Any any final comments on this, or do you think we've kind of run the course as far as Zadoichi's concerned here? I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that the way he won at the gambling in this is taken straight yeah. out of the second Zadoichi film. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's I've I've it's been a while, but I mean, it's, it didn't feel especially original or new. And, and yeah, I, I read reviews where they say, yeah, this is pretty much a direct quote, the dice coming out of his sleeve. And he's thinking, you know, he's, he's basically tricking and exploiting the greed and, and, uh, you know, the cynical corruption of these, of these, you know, deadbeat gamblers. So yeah, you know, maybe it's, you know, what, 10 years on since the, the first films were made so he can recycle a few gags there, but he didn't, seem to put a lot of creativity into that aspect you know which even in some of the more ludicrous um you know store, sword stunts at least are coming up with something different this this felt very much like well yeah you got to have your gambling scene in there so let's just kind of pull this one out of the archives and and that's that's how he gets this enormous you know uh, handkerchief full of cash so that he can and it can pay off uh the woman's kind of uh fee the the bondage that she's in uh, he has to he has to liberate her from that you know i don't know it's it's just uh some of those plot elements were just very formulaic but they they served a larger purpose and that's where we find zatoichi in desperation i think that this sentence will perfectly sum up all of our feelings on the film are you guys ready lay it on us brother it was a movie <laughs> it certainly was yeah <laughs> yeah it qualifies for that. So let's go ahead and just do some some wrap-ups. Richard, I saw just today you posted on Facebook that you've done a kind of a comprehensive review of the works of Jonathan Demme. So you want to yes, tell I us did. a little bit about your uh, little project there. Uh, what, 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 did, what were your conclusions on uh, Demme's work? Yeah, earlier earlier this year, actually, I decided to like pick one filmmaker at a time and like watch everything i could find in order so demi was like the second 
guy I picked up on. Um, I, it was it was a pleasant experience. I probably would have thought less of his later work going into it than I did at watching it in context, you know, because you start seeing his penchant for uh, having some really vivid depictions of like communities and things like that in his films that kind of elevate some of the films that I frankly didn't like from after Silence of the Lambs. But um, it, it re it so really reinforced with me that he's sort of a was a really brilliant director of, of concert films like they're mm-hmm. they're yeah. they're universally good and even like i ended the whole thing with a justin timberlake concert yeah yeah, I saw, yeah. Saw that right and it's not exactly music that i listen to a lot but i really love that and it's partly his contribution you know it, it was it was the a, way it's it, presented, yeah, yeah just the, yeah, the yeah. visuals and the yeah. composition, right? Yeah, yeah, he um he he was really really good at that. Even some films like Rachel Getting Married that have huge musical segments in them kind of leap into life when he does that sort of thing. Hmm. It, it was hmm. really an interesting experience. I, as I said today, I'm I'm moving on to Robert Wise. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so how do you how do you land on these particular directors? I mean, Jonathan Demme's you know certainly not a lightweight. He's got a pretty impressive filmography, and I saw your rankings there, which are I guess you post them on your Facebook page. Um, but but how did you land on Demme, and and what led you to pick Robert Wise as the follow up? I've made a big list, and I'm picking one at random. Okay, <laughs> of just of just directors. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah cool, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that update. It's, it's cool to kind of hear a little bit more of your insight. And uh, yeah, definitely follow Richard on Facebook. I think you pretty much accept requests. Is that, is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah, pretty much. Sure. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on all of the noir movies he's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's That'll be the year, especially the early stuff will be that. So. Well, and speaking of noir, Robert, we are in November, so you want to tell us a little bit about how your column's doing or just any other random thoughts you have on the topic? Yes, let's see what I am up to. I believe that I have just finished. Can you tell I have like 20 articles in advance? I have just yeah, finished yeah. a slight mini odyssey within the noir odyssey about Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended it with Psycho, which I think in retrospect I sort of realized most people say 1955 is the end of the classic noir period. I would push it to Psycho, simply because the first half of the film itself is a classic noir, mm-hmm. and then the shower scene happens, and it turns into a horror movie and the more psychological thrillers that took place in the 1960s. So it feels like literally an end to an era and the beginning of the next era. So All in one movie. Not, all you know, in like, one movie. Yeah, yeah, it's right. really, really interesting now that I have, like, watched something like 350 noir films yeah. to sort of think about them all within the tapestry and look at how certain movies are actually sort of ripping off other noirs that are lesser known that happened beforehand. Like the killing is normally considered, I think the killing has sort of become everyone's, Oh, that's the first one we watch because it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. There's a movie called, um, Armed robbery, armored car robbery, sorry, that was made five years prior that has the exact same plot and it ends on an, at an airport where money is blown about on hmm. uh, the runway. And I was like, wait, what? Oh, I thought, I at first when I watched it thought that it was a ripoff of The Killing. And then I was like, oh, hang on a second. This is, this came out beforehand. Clearly Kubrick must have seen it beforehand. It's too coincidental if he did not. Right, yeah. Stanley Kubrick, the genre formulaic hack. Exactly, (laughs) right? I have turned this into a burn on Stanley Kubrick somehow. But I'm having a lot of of fun. The next big one is going to be Fritz Lang, which will probably start around uh, the turn of the year. So I'm looking forward to diving into all of his noir. Well, that's a pretty impressive catalog right there. Well, cool. Well, I'll definitely put the link in the show notes to Robert's uh, column and stuff. Any other updates or business uh, that you want to share with listeners, Robert? I literally got an email that I was hired for a job while we were doing this episode. So we are very yes. excited about that. <laughs> um, very Congratulations. Yes. But aside from... I guess to be continued. Okay. <laughs> I will well. find out if I can announce it the next time I guess on an episode. Yeah. But right, well, yes, congratulations to me. Yeah. <laughs> nice to get a little validation over the email there. Yes. All right. 
Well, cool. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking with you guys. Thank you for uh, kind of guiding me through this treacherous passage here, a uh, dangerous Jadowichi film. Uh, my next one really is going to be a palate cleanser. I'm going to be talking about Martin Ritz Sounder, <laughs> a nice oh. family film. Uh, David Seeley, uh, our, my friend over in England there, has uh, generously volunteered to get in on that one. So we're going to talk about a, a interesting story from the black community uh it's not just a dog movie although that's kind of how i had categorized it based on early childhood exposure to the story and concept but uh i had a chance to watch it a couple weeks ago i'll give it another shot and then david and i'll have a conversation about it so definitely into a little bit more family friendly territory than we've been and just a little bit more of an uplifting and inspiring tale that uh, i'll definitely enjoy kind of shifting gears a little bit and talking about that one so Sounder's the next one up. Uh, that'll be episode 130 coming up here. And then uh, in a few more days, Trevor and I are going to be doing an episode of Inside the Box where he and I will be talking about the uh, Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman set. And boy, what a magnificent set of films that really is. And I'm looking forward to talking about that with my pal Trevor. So that'll be coming out uh, probably sometime after this episode is mixed and released. So that's what's happening in my world. So, listeners, give us your feedback, especially if you're a Zadoichi head. I'm definitely interested in hearing what others think about this particular installment in the franchise. So share your thoughts with me on my Facebook page or wherever else you might find me on social media. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be coming out to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>